One last roll of the dice for the oh. Eagles. Leo Barry, you star. If it's not the best mark of all time, it's got to be top three. It's like I only ever played one game and uh, I was fortunate enough to take a lucky mark in that one game. How it came out of my, my mouth, I don't know, but it was just, the whole thing was sheer chaos and you just had to try and hold yourself together. Welcome once again to At The G for this, the first of a two-part special on one great rivalry which produced two amazing grand finals that went all the way. I'm Anthony Hudson, and while we're all more than a little sad that this year's AFL grand final will not be played at the MCG, we can at least tell the story of one of the great grand final days at the G when we were gripped to the very last second. The exhausting but enthralling conclusion to the 2005 season featured one of the greatest marks and calls of all time, as Leo Barryu star became one of the game's great catch cries. But there's another moment that shaped the result that is often forgotten. The crowd just erupted because <laughs> the Premiership's riding on that, and that was a bloody incredible goal, and that was as big as Leo's mark. 100% is a bigger moment. Yeah, Leo just happened to get all the credit. <laughs> now, true to the period, the 05 Grand Final featured two non-Victorian teams, Sydney and West Coast. But there was a tie to footy's heartland. And it was a strong tie for those that had stayed loyal to the red and the white, even after the struggling South Melbourne were sent to Sydney in the early 80s. There'd been glimmers of hope amongst the fast cash and those pink helicopters of the Edelston years, and even a grand final appearance in 1996 under Rodney Eade. But the longest of all periods for a club without a flag had now extended to 72 years. So this is the story of how, with a unique approach to leadership, and using a game style criticised even in the top office, the Swans attempted to break the greatest premiership drought of all time. When you think back on the Swans' history, there's been no success. We've had individual success, but no team success. This is for the Bloods. I just wanted to, <laughs> to, to yell it to the world, I guess. We'll hear the Eagles' perspective from the coach of the day, John Worsfold, and superstars Chris Jard and Dean Cox, who along with Ben Cousins and Daniel Kerr, were emerging as one of the most explosive midfields of all time. I just remember how exhausted everyone was. And we, we had some forward thrusting. And, and even though we were going forward, it just felt like there was just so much exhaustion attached. It didn't feel like we were about to score, to be honest. That's what makes those games, I think, classic games, is that uh, there were so many opportunities and moments in the games that, that everyone was hanging on. But to tell the bulk of the story, the Swans coach, Paul Ruse, who'd famously used the notes he made as a much-admired player as the basis for his coaching mantra. And leaders, Brett Kirk, Michael O'Loughlin, and of course, Leo Barry. 
football is so public, so you can't, whether you want to avoid it or not. I mean, we never sort of set out, it's probably when Kirky got up and grabbed his jumper and said, this one's for the Bloods, where the, that name came out. It was really internal and quite private. So it's not something we set out to publicly say, this is what we are. It was really internal. It was something really personal, something we embarked on thinking we'll hope this works you know getting players involved and empowerment and picking a leadership group where did you get it from that idea it's funny it it actually really stemmed from my experience at Fitzroy and I never really understood at the time but as I went through my career and I realized the impact that the leaders had on me and this was being really respectful of Robert Walls and David Parker but Walls he was a school teacher and Parker was a lecturer so they didn't have a lot of time with the players. We had 60, 70 guys, sometimes more, turn up to pre-season training. I barely could remember the names. So I don't know how Walls in Parking could remember them. And I remember going through my career and I thought, gee, if I didn't get to that club, my life could have been dramatically different. So that's the notion of culture, leadership, role modelling. And then when I got the job in 2000, mid-2002, it was the very notion of, well, let's not leave it to, ch- leave it to chance. Let's, let's let the players create their environment. And, and, and a bit of it was, hope it works. <laughs> you know, there was sort of, I was never naive enough to think, well, this is the panacea for success. It was almost like it was never been done before. This is what I feel could work. This is what we're going to try and create. And as history tells you, it worked. Ruzi gave everyone a, um, a clean slate to really start again. It doesn't matter if you were there for one year or, like myself, for you know, six, seven years. So, um, and that's really what the Bloods culture was about. It was about the care factor, being really open and honest, as, as honest as I've ever been in, um, in a footy club because of you go out and you want to play your first game, then you want to play your 50th game, then you want to play your 100th game. We were like, okay, we've got to get away from that mentality how can I help the young bloke improve? Because when that young guy gets better, our team is going to get better and I'm going to get better. So really whole different thought process uh, to what I was used to and a lot of the other guys were used to. We we felt that we didn't really stand for too much when Paul took over and sort of, I guess, empowered the group to decide on, okay, well, what do you really want to stand for? Like, what is it we want to value and what's important to us? And we went through a whole um, process of sort of looking at things but at the end of the day it was sort of what do we hold dear and you know what are, what do we want other people to think about us and once we sort of got an understanding and a picture and what it looked like we just drove the shit out of it and didn't accept anything less. We had some really good years there. 96, 98 I think we could have really did some damage but we fell short. When I look back on it now like there were times myself and others could have done more, I reckon. Um, and you, it's a really, you, you try not to do that too much as a player. You try to move forward and keep on improving. But you look back at your career and you go, well, we, we could have done so, so much more damage. Where that really comes from, the blood's ethos and the, and the blood's culture, I, I think it was just about going above and beyond and, and willing to do everything for not yourself, but for others. Um, and it was being accountable and accepting criticism. and Because what happens is people, I reckon, when someone challenges or, you, or someone's critical of you, you, you get your back up at the wall and you say, look at this guy. Uh, who, who does he think he is? He's not perfect either. But it's not about me who's challenging someone being perfect. It's actually just challenging saying, mate, I need you to be at your best. I think you can do better. And if you do that, we're going to win more games than we lose. That's what I remember at the time. People were saying, how could Stewie Maxfield be captain of an AFL club? That just doesn't make sense. But it was the turning point to the Tom Harley, Cameron Ling. So players that probably would never have got a chance to captain the club. Nick Maxwell, 
became the norm of around and Stewie was the pioneer and we were the pioneer of that. So at the time, yeah, we never know we never knew what was going to happen. But yeah, I think we were probably ahead of our time in in doing some of the things we did and and fifteen years down the track it's it's very normal now. The key one that came out of it was once we knew what it looked like, we wanted to actually identify with something and that's when we decided that we'd lost connection to our history and our past in South Melbourne and we were probably in between and you know there's a fair few country boys in there so we'd always talked about sort of not forgetting where you came from so we wanted to look back in our past and bloods was something that was really strong through the history of that perseverance and never give up attitude and we just adopted it and then we um, rewarded it and we just drove it hard and as the time went on that was perception outside the walls but it was definitely something that was a big driver inside the walls as well and connecting to our fans and stuff was really important. I look at the All Blacks and you know wonder how what connection these guys have and they obviously have a, this sort of spiritual connection to their, their heritage and but not all of them are from the same place so there's something else that binds them and there was yeah there's something really special um, that we we started and that was definitely something that connected us and had had this really strong bond the longer we played together and the more sort of success and belief that we had in it the stronger it got while Ruse had the reputation as an attacking player as a coach he recognised that as the sport became truly professional the game had evolved at a rapid rate which led to a coaching mindset change that still remains today. Where did your game style come from? It was probably one of the great misinterpretations of I don't think that anyone ever really knew how we wanted to play other than the people within the room. Yeah because we were seen as this sort of dour flooding team and, and we were actually the opposite. So where did it come from? Probably my basketball background. And I guess world sport, John Longmire did some research for me, or maybe he did it for himself, but he was my assistant coach, came back and there was only really one indicator of success over the past 20 years, and that was defence. The top defensive teams, there was an outlier which ironically Horse played in, I think it was a 96 North Melbourne team. You had to be in the top four defensive teams, and it might even be top two. That was the only thing, and we were probably a bit surprised, but then... I mean, when you delve down on it, it made a little bit more sense. I had a basketball background, and in basketball, you can either play a zone defence, you can drop back, you can play a full-court press, you can drop back in a zone, or what I was taught as a player is, is full-court man-to-man. So as soon as you lose the ball, you pick up an opponent straight away. You know, we went to the AIS, and then we developed this drill, which we called the basketball drill, which was a bloody hard drill. It was a four-on-four whole-ground drill, um, where as soon as you lost the ball, you had to pick up a man straight away. So I think we were always seen as flooding back. We never flooded back. That was the opposite to what we wanted to do. But what we wanted to do as soon as the opposition got the ball is you had to pick up your man straight away, not in 30 seconds or 10 seconds or 15 seconds. So we were just a really aggressive defensive team, and it was really easy to teach. It was like easy to identify you know, who was supposed to be playing on who. So it was easy to to say to the players, well, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. So it, it probably came from the basketball background, really. Juddy, what was it actually like playing against the Swans and their style? There was less space. So Rusey was, you know, one of the first coaches to really try and close up their, their space with regards to exits from stoppages. You know, and that, that's sort of become commonplace now. But back then that was quite rare. So there were, yeah, there were more numbers around the ball and the games were scrappy and, and full of you know, contested football opportunities. So it was just very hard to score against. And, and even if you felt like you were on top significantly in the game, it was very hard to, 
to put that on the scoreboard and to, to cause them to be out of, out of touch. You were seen as the ugly swans, even publicly and famously by the league CEO, Andrew Demetrio. Again, it was probably more of an issue in Melbourne. It was interesting because Sydney was a very... Yeah, we had Tony Lockett. Now, Plugger was a, a goal-kicking forward, but he was still a big, tough, physical player that, that loved to, to tackle and put pressure on. We had Barry Hall as our marquee player. And because they had a rugby league, rugby union background, which was very physical, it certainly wasn't an, as big an issue in Sydney because they were more used to the... I guess, the style of football that we played, which was very in-your-face, very aggressive, you know, tackle straight away. But I guess when the CEO of the AFL comes out and says it, it sort of it becomes a story in itself. But, we, yeah, we dealt with it in our own way. And we, I guess part of coaching is knowing whether it's your game style or whether you're just playing poorly. And we were just playing poorly. You know, we were just not doing the things that we knew made us a really good team. And then we were just able to correct them towards the back end of the season. So you get to the 05 finals and you lose the qualifying final in a thriller in Perth against the Eagles, which is kind of where the rivalry really started. And then, of course, that amazing comeback over Geelong in the wet in Sydney. And then the preliminary final where your co-captain Barry Hall gets reported, but ultimately not suspended. And you beat the Saints and make it through to the grand final. But, gee, there's plenty of drama in the lead up, wasn't there? Yeah, it was. It was incredible. And I think that's what made it even more memorable. Not only... Because I think what happened through that period, even people that had sort of criticised us through that year, really came to respect us towards the end of the season. Um, Yeah, I think you were doing the game when we beat Geelong. You know, we certainly didn't set out to kick four goals, or I think we won with eight goals. But then in the last quarter, we just... I think that was the strength of the team. We just... We didn't get phased by too much, and we just kept doing the things that we knew made us great, and we hadn't been doing many of them. And then all of a sudden, Dave kicked his, was it four in the last quarter or whatever, and we won the game by a point. And I think, yeah, I remember sitting there thinking, if we don't win this game, we're going to get slaughtered by the media. You know, And it was funny what goes through your mind. But having won it, I think next week too, where we kicked seven goals in the first quarter, I think six goals in the last quarter, people probably couldn't really work out how we were doing the things we were doing. But I think... That month, even the fact that we just won the way we did, intertwined with a couple of really big scoring quarters, probably added to the intrigue, but also the respect that we got through that period yeah, it was enormous. And then there was no longer talk about you know, the ugly swans and how bad their game style was and all that sort of stuff, which is probably typical of the way, yeah, the way our industry works. Well, just to step away for a moment from the story of the 2005 Grand Final. If you're new to our podcast, it's well worth going back to check out some of the early episodes celebrating the great moments and stories at the G. The marathon brings out extraordinary things. And it was Kieran McCann and Helen Sharono, that battle. And when McCann came into the stadium, oh, God, it was amazing. It really was. Guts. I, it was a fairy tale that just burned out so quickly and, and it still has me shaking my head at times, you know. It's, um, it's tough. One lap from glory. It's so fast. This is a remarkable race. It's an astonishing sight here with 80,000 people roaring him on. Does he have that big kick to hold? 
stuff. And I remember taking my son to the footy and I said to him, Christian, you know, many years ago, dad owned the MCG for a night and he, he just looked at me and laughed and said, no, no, the MCG's for football, dad. Was the one time where he would flex his, his standing as, as a sportsman of some note and say, hey, I'm Don Bradman, you want to come over and make some music? I realised it wasn't Sir Donald that was at fault many years ago, it was me. As the big day approached, the differences in personnel and style of both teams were not only acknowledged but also being celebrated. Rossi Lyon was the midfield coach. He'd often, we'd talk about being um, blue collar and put your work boots on boys and get to work. And so we did have that mentality. So I remember going to the press conference and, um, and they were talking about the comparisons. I'd sort of thought back of growing up back home and mum and dad had this old Cortina, it was this beige Cortina. And, um, but the thing just kept going and going and going and you know, it had a heap of Ks on the clock and never had any problems mechanically and it just did its job. And I just thought, that's a bloody good analogy for, for our midfield. And then sort of looking at Cox, Kerr, Judd, Cousins, it was like they're bloody like Lamborghinis. So it was sort of the, the Cortinas versus the Lamborghinis sort of came out. Yeah, it was a pretty good analogy in the end. But we typically, because we're an interstate team, we come down and we have our meeting on a Friday night, you know, if we're, we're travelling. And I think as a coach going into a grand final, you, you, you're feeling your own way really, you know, what you're going to say and... I felt the players needed confidence, you know, going into the game and needed to know that I believed in them and they believed in each other. So, you know, in talking to the players and, you know, I think they felt that was a pivotal moment when I basically guaranteed that they were going to win. And it wasn't a guaranteed based on arrogance or disrespect of the opposition. I'm sure Wisher would have said the same thing to his teams. And ironically, it, it turned out to be profound in more ways than one because I said guys it's just going to be the team that plays their game style you know for the longer that's going to win and I guarantee if we do it we will win yeah the doubt creeps in more in the mind about can we do it for longer than a great team you know because that's going to be the challenge but I felt like they needed to know that you know our game style was going to stack up it's just a matter of whether we believed in it long enough and we were able to produce it for long long periods of time against a really good footy team. You'd been there previously as a player in 96 and it had been ultimately disappointing. What are your memories of the day itself and just before the game even started? Yeah, it's vastly different as a player and a coach because as, as selfless as any player that's ever played in the grand final, you know, if you talked about the most selfless player and I suppose you're talking about guys like a, you know, a Brett Kirk type, a Liam Shields type, you know, the guys that just sacrifice themselves as selfless as you are, ultimately you're looking after yourself, you know. Ultimately it's what am I going to eat before the game, what, what amount of sleep I'm going to get, you know, I hope I don't make a goose of myself. Yeah, so, and that's probably when I look back, I go, where was I on the spectrum of selflessness as a player? I was probably more on the selfish side than the selfless side, to be perfectly frank, when I look back. But still I felt like, you know, I was always a pretty good team player. But I remember going to the 96 grand final, it was all about me. But in the context of my role... There is zero about self going into a grand final as a coach. You're not thinking about yourself at all in the slightest. You're thinking about, well, how can I make the team better? It's completely about the team, which makes the day a bit harder because you've got so many more things going through your mind. You're thinking about assistant coaches, medical staff, players, family, chairman, CEO, everyone. So there's so many things going through your mind. So that ability to, to stay present is really, really important. 
once you're inside the rooms, it's not quite as bad because it's it becomes a bit more normalised, and you just try and make it as normal as you possibly can. You get to the ground, and that's when sort of the hairs on the back of the neck stand up. You know you're in it. We fully prepared, as I guess as West Coast would have been, that this is going to be an absolute, I guess, a war out on the oval. <laughs> it's we knew it was going to be a tough struggle. There's going to be one on one accountability all over the ground. You knew that with both teams played each other. Not too many people sagged off and played loose man in defence. Or we, you knew what you were going to get, and I think the rest of Australia knew what they were going to get as well. I remember just a mixture of emotions. Uh, really excited about being able to play on Grand Final day. Incredibly nervous. I remember just telling myself that. You know, there's that joke that if you and your friend are being chased by a bear, you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun your friend. That was sort of how I viewed the nerves for, for grand final day, that you didn't have to be unaffected by nerves, you just had to be affected by them less than, than the opposition players. So that was a real, that was the mindset I had going into the game. I think a lot of our teammates were incredibly young and had come from eight, you know, really come from nowhere from 2004 to, to 2005. So. I don't think our group held a lot of fear and we knew what we were coming up against in, in Sydney and we knew they were a great side so you know those grand finals are such an intense intense moment in your life. It was electric, it just went so quick when you think back on it everything you dreamt of to get an opportunity and then oh, I suppose the first part is to try and stay focused in the lead in that was probably the toughest thing and the time from when you were in, woke up in the morning had to do the normal routine and get to the ground on the bus and wait for the ball to bounce it took a bit longer. Ball's bounced and we and we get going and the MCG is just electric. It's chockers, you know. I still go to all the grand finals when I can, and there's nothing like it. The opening quarter was as tight and as tough as expected. The Swans gained a two-point lead, but the Eagles provided the clear highlight. So, Dean, how is a bloke what six foot eight able to run and bounce a couple of times from the wing and kick a special long goal like that in a grand final? Yeah, I was fortunate. I was coming off at the time. Um, and we turned the ball over and found myself pretty free on the wing. And here, I suppose, back in the day, they sort of didn't really press the ball carrier too often and folded back. And I kept running for a little bit. And fortunately enough, the kick came off. And, you know, certainly you remember the good moments you need in the grand final. And that was probably one of them. It was a rarity for the Eagles, who would be goalless in the second term. And with Daniel Kerr struggling with an injury, they looked in trouble. O'Loughlin, Adam Goods and Ty Kennelly, who was looking to become the first Irishman to win an AFL Premiership, all kicked goals and things were going as well as possible for the Swans. Yeah, it did. I think we really were carrying out, you know, what we needed to do. We, you know, we knew we weren't as talented as West Coast, but we knew our game style. When we won the ball, we were running and spreading and trying to move it. When they got it, we lost it. We were getting on our man really, really quickly and making it hard from them. So our game style, you know, was on show. But knowing you're playing a great team, I mean, that's the hardest thing about playing in a grand final. You know, it's not like potentially round five, six, seven, where you're first or second playing the 15, 16 team. It's guys... 20 points up, I got a little bit of wiggle room, but the other team and the other, there's, there's Chris Judd and Ben Cousins and Dean Cox and, you know, yeah, you go through them. So you know it's just going to be a war of attrition from there. And it was, and they, they came hard for you, kicked three unanswered goals, had all the momentum really, only two points behind at the last change. So what was your approach as you went down to address the team? If you're going down into a huddle in a grand final and you're within a goal or you know, you're in front by a goal, you're in a good position. 
yeah, either way, because you you're respecting the opposition completely. Yeah, you know one of your goals is going to be to be in the game at every moment. We're in the game at every moment, and then the next phase is to to get across to your players. It's it's going to be more of the same, boys. And I'm sorry, it's like I can't I can't help you much now. It's more of the same. It's whether you're prepared to play for each other, whether you're prepared to stick to the game plan. And if we do it more often than them, we, we should win. But I can't guarantee anything at this point, you know. Um, so, yeah, look, I was comfortable going down at three-quarter time. Because when you're playing a team like the, the Eagles, you know if you don't execute your game plan, you could be 40 down. You know, not not 10 or 20. You, you're going to be 40 down and then you can't win. So I was really pleased going down at three-quarter time. But equally... You know, just getting across to the players. This is the way we have to play, and if we continue to do that, we give it, we continue to give ourselves a chance. So, Brett Ruzi gave all the structural advice, but you gave one of your emotional rev ups. One of my strengths is part of my emotion and that, or the awareness, and to be able to understand and different people and know when the right time was. So, yeah, it tends to be would be steely eyed, getting eye contact, you know, grabbing a jumper and then speaking with some high emotion and sort of looking to pull other guys in, then the headspace is not in the right spot to try to keep steering them in the right direction. And they'd made their move, Hunter forward. He'd already kicked a goal by three-quarter time. You'd seen it before, of course. Yeah, and I think the predictability of what we did and what they did made the games great. We wouldn't have thrown anything at Wisher that he hadn't seen before. Wisher wouldn't have thrown anything at us that we hadn't seen before. So the predictability made the games so compelling because it was, yeah, Hunter Ford, what were we going to do? If someone got off the chain, we would maybe move a Crouch or a Matthews onto them to try and stop them. And But they had so many great players. And it just came down to moments, really. The last quarter was just, you know, great players standing up on both sides, big moments. But they were all rehearsed moments. It wasn't, I don't think anyone, you know, certainly in our box or their box, saw anything that was like, wow, I didn't see that coming. So, that, again, that's the predictability of a grand final. But in the same breath, the uncertainty of what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. The final term is still quite remarkable to look back on. The first big moment is one that could easily have haunted a player forever. Luke Ablett, who despite his famous family name, was a no-frills team-first player. But early in the last quarter, an excellent one-handed mark turned to disaster. Lachlan can't control it, Nikoski can. Busts the tackle, throws it onto the left, looks for Gardner. Oh. Ablett's oh, stuck up the right mitt. Oh, Ablett. <laughs> what a crucial mark. Well, they're all crucial in this last oh. quarter. Oh, the square up. The square up by Ablett has been marked by Cousins. And this to put West Coast in front. Look at the Sydney teammates go to Ablett and say, forget about it. He's gone. The short kick across the face of goal. Cousins awake to it. For the first time since the first quarter, Eagles are in front. But then to have his teammates run over and hug him and pat him and and I reckon it actually settled down every supporter in the stand and, and certainly every coach in the coach's box. We've all seen those moments where people are forever remembered for that one blooper. You know, America's unbelievable at, you know, tearing people down because of it. Not probably just Luke, probably myself. I've kicked probably two or three points that day and it wasn't 
like you know you're playing and actually played okay and you're getting your hands in the footy and then being able to compose yourself and kick that ball and 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 and, and Luke looks looks across didn't see I think it was Cuzzy he takes the mark kicks the goal and you go okay shit we've been the great thing about we train in scenarios like that so Ruzi more than any other coach I've ever had would we would just do length of ground drills and scenarios and he would just yell it out two minutes go we're behind and then the training and, and and how you prepare is unbelievably important match like and when i look back on it I, i'm so pleased that the players basically in that moment said no don't worry about it we'll, we've got we got you covered and again it typified what the players meant to each other nonetheless the swan situation got worse with hunter's second goal it was the eagles fifth in a row and gave them a 10-point lead. But up stepped Barry Hall. The co-captain marked 50 metres from goal and stared down the challenge, delivering a long, unerring drop punt which had the Swans back within four points and put the game back on a knife's edge. The next nine minutes were without a goal as both sides missed the pressure-filled chances on offer. John Worsfold remembers clearly the closest they got. When veteran from the 1994 Premiership, Drew Banfield, received a quick handball from Daniel Kerr. And I remember Drew Banfield had a running shot for goal and uh, the coach's box was sort of right behind it. And it was a long shot at goal and it looked like it was going in and it was going to be tight. And you just it was one of those ones that it felt like the ball was in the air for a couple of minutes uh, and it hit the post. And it may have put us out to a more than six-point lead. Um, which was going to be critical for us. The footy moved quickly to the other end and soon a ball-up was called just 20 metres out from the Sydney goal. And one of the lower-profile Swans, who was playing the game of his life, would walk into the grand final spotlight. Eamon Buchanan was a country kid playing just his 48th game of AFL football. We're always looking to go, OK, we all can't kick this, we all can't get our hands on it. Eamon was a pretty special player that could come up in just sort of those opportune times and found some space, which he did. And Tim, let's uh, remember, Sydney in this situation are very, very good. Let's go back a couple of finals ago. Ball to Davis. Buchanan puts them in front. You call it in one, Robert. You call it in one. While they had the momentum up, ball, it was a good coaching move by Paul Ruse. They took Jolly off, ball got the hit. It's the same spot, the same side. It's not the same player who kicked the goal. It's a left footer, of course. Ball to space, barging through, and a wonderful strategy goal. The crowd just erupted because the Premiership's riding on that. And... That was a bloody incredible goal, and that was as big as Leo's mark. 100%. Amon kicks that goal and puts us in front, and the, the roar of the crowd is as big as when Leo took that mark. A huge moment, and, and I still do talks, obviously, around that game, but not, not specifically for the moments, but in terms of Eamon Buchanan, and you called uh, the two weeks before, and I think Wolsey was calling it, and 
on the game and he basically called it before it happened thing. So we'd rehearsed that goal over and over and over and over and over and over again. So it, was, it wasn't luck against the Geelong and it wasn't luck against West Coast. You know, by the same token that Hunter going forward wasn't luck and him kicking the goal. That was rehearsed by the West Coast Eagles. So all the moments you saw... Yeah, Barry Hall's goal, that's not luck, that's planning and ability and things like that. So, yeah, we'd plan for it. Jason Ball's hit down, the blocks and where we were and where, you know, instead of Nick Davis, it was Eamon Buchanan. But, yeah, 100% is a bigger moment. And and also Eamon's tackles and his smothers, I think a smother on a half-forward flank, a tackle on the wing. Yeah, Leo just happened to get all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> my best memories of the grand final are being able to share it with my family. So come from a really close-knit family down in Colac. I've got five brothers, but I vividly remember seeing my family down in Melbourne, you know, the day before the game. One of my brothers dropped a letter to me, which was really moving the night of the grand final. It was from my oldest brother, Rani, who's probably the, the spiritual leader of our family. But he just said, you know, we're, we've been on the ride with you, we're all the way with you. We'll feel every tackle, every bump with you and kind of just talk through a few different things like that. He, you know, he's kind of one of those um, country footballers that had played in about 50 grand finals in at 30 different teams around Victoria. <laughs> So he kind of gave me a few um, a few tips on playing in grand finals, which was quite funny. But just being able to share that, you know, the, the experience with them and almost, you know, knowing that they'd got me there and now it was time to kind of give a bit back. They got back in front. So I went from thinking if Banfield kicks his goal, I reckon we're just about going to win it um, to all of a sudden we were behind and then looking for that next opportunity. So... Yeah, there were some moments um, late in that game that were that were on a you know a knife's edge and and just so tight. That's what makes those games, I think, classic games. Is that uh, there were so many opportunities and moments in the games that that everyone was um, hanging on, especially the coach. After that goal, it just felt like it was so long until the <laughs> siren went. So I knew there was about nine or ten minutes left to play. It felt like it was another two quarters of footy in that ten minutes. The MCG, there's no other place in the, in the world like it. And when they're tight games and the crowd gets involved, it's unbelievable. So we're in front, then we're behind, and then, you know, I'm kicking them out in the full. You know, every contest mattered in the scheme of things. In the minutes that followed, Buchanan would add a desperate spoil, a diving tackle, and at a stoppage, another beautiful connection with a Ruckman ball, putting the footy on the chest of Ryan O'Keefe, just inside 50. O'Keefe failed to convert, but he certainly wasn't alone, as the Swans kicked three behinds and had two other failed scoring attempts, including a brilliant chase and lunging tackle by Chris Judd, which led to Jude Bolton missing the lot with a snap. Four points in it, with four minutes 44 remaining. The next few minutes were even more stifling. The players exhausted, the tension around the MCG almost unbearable. With little clear possession, each side had just one substantial opportunity. Andrew Embley's wobbly kick into the Eagles' forward line was read beautifully by the desperate Kirk. In the back pocket where it was starting to get late in the game, a sort of a low ball comes in, I dived and took a mark on off the deck and sort of faked a cramp for on my left leg and then my right leg. And I, th- I think, I forget who the umpire was. He's like, mate, get up and take a kick. So. The umpire, by the way, was Darren Goldspink. 
Shortly after, a 50-metre penalty was awarded against West Coast youngster Brent Staker, who arrived a little late to an Adam Goods mark. Goods took the long set shot for goal, but he too managed just a behind. The Eagles had the ball back with 1.55 left. Ten seconds later, a throw-in on the wing, which then became a ball up, then another and another, as the physically spent players simultaneously tried in vain to clear the ball. I just remember how exhausted everyone was. And we, we had some forward thrusting. And, and even though we were going forward, it just felt like there was just so much exhaustion attached. It, it didn't feel like we were about to score, to be honest. The agony clear to see in the television coverage, from the stony-faced gum-chewing in the coach's box to the shots of fans literally chewing nails or the Eagles supporter with head in hands, barely able to watch. Everyone knew the end was near. But not exactly how near. In fact, there were 62 seconds remaining. At the fourth stoppage, Jude Bolton leapt over the Ruckman, but his tap fell into the arms of Daniel Kerr. A quick hand pass followed to Cousins, whose kick landed just inside the attacking 50. Three pairs of Swans and Eagles formed a desperate marking contest, but Leo Barry's determination shone through. A spoil followed by a ground-level lunge, Somehow, though, the ball still fell for Andrew Embley, whose awkward handball bounced up for the veteran Banfield. From 60 metres out, he kicked long right to the top of the goal square. And in a sign of things to come, there were even more flyers this time. But somehow, the ball gets to the back, and for an agonising moment, it appears it will fall into the lap of eagle Mark Nikoski in the square. But instead, it's the Irishman Canelli who saves the day rushing a behind. When Kennelly calmly finds Barry in the back pocket with a short kick in, there is 25 seconds remaining. But Barry himself is in the dark about how long there is left. And so too was Channel 10 commentator Stephen Quartermain, thanks to the network's policy of using a count-up clock in the final minutes rather than counting down. I can promise you I never asked the production team, how long to go. I love the five-minute warning. I still do. I absolutely loathe the countdown clock. All the element of surprise is gone for the viewers, for the fans at the ground. I absolutely love the five-minute warning, and I I think it improves you as a caller too because when there's you're also subject to the element of surprise, I think it even adds more to the commentary. It's funny, just sort of looking at it, it seemed as though I had all the time in the world, but I thought the, uh, the umpire called me on the play really, really quickly. It's interesting when you follow the replay and Adam Goods is still, a, you know, obviously I, I still talk to Adam a lot and he was actually on short where I could have actually done a nice little short kick to him uh, just on the 50, but um, I reneged on the kick and just thought it was probably a bit more uh, bit more safety just going long because I could see Darren Jolly just sliding across that towards the wing. I thought that's probably the most safest option is just kicking to Ruckman and hopefully the ball goes out of bounds or we, or we at least get another stoppage. Instead, Dean Cox takes the mark and drives the ball back in. Well, even down to that last kick inside 50, it's like, OK, which way is this going to go? If Even if we don't mark, if it comes to ground, We've got some pretty good ground-level players. Are we going to get a shot at goal? Well, I remember it was so intense that I was actually judging the Norm Smith medal voting that day and I had Patrick Keane breathing down the back of my neck going, give me the result. And I said, mate, how can I give you a result? The game hasn't even been decided yet. And it was just sheer chaos, actually, to be honest. 
I don't know. It was just chaos. And uh, I remember the ball going back out and wondering how long there is to go. And Cox takes the mark and back it came. And, uh, and you know, and I, that, that actual saying that came out of my mouth, it's not something that I've always, that I've never said. It's not sort of my terminology. So how it came out of my, my mouth, I don't know. But it was just, the whole thing was sheer chaos. And you just had to try and hold yourself together. It was just instinct. You know, I probably just wheeled and, and tried to get in as deep as quick as I possibly could. Didn't want to get caught with the ball in the situation of where it was. Yeah, obviously played a little bit of kick to kick with Leo and um, the rest is history. Oh, good mark by Cox. Cox throws it onto the left. One last roll of the dice for the I was just happy to, happy to take hold of the mark because we had no idea at the time. You can't beat playing on the MCG when there's 95,000 in that Coliseum going absolutely berserk. And at that particular stage, it was like the, almost the the ground was shaking. I was playing on CB at that stage. Yeah, I, I had no idea where he was or where he was positioned on the ground either. And and to be honest, when it, because Cox was so quick on his um on his kick and he it was a pretty big kick in the end. I was literally still positioned in the back pocket where, where I'd uh, obviously received the kick from Ty. And I think, you know, when you look at the photo, it's quite amazing how many actual players were involved in it. You know, Amon began in a fight. He was going with the flight. Lewis Roberts-Thompson, you know, Tyg was in the photo. Everyone um, basically had their eyes on the ball, and I think everyone was going for the mark. I didn't know who was there or who was around. And- I've gone into the pack, which you don't do as a small, like, gone to fly into a big pack and I think my opponent Nikoski again at the time he's left open on the ground so kind of a rule of thumb if you're small and you're going to jump into a pack you've got to mark it or spoil it and I was not going to do either of them so I kind of leave one on the deck waiting for a crumb so lucky Leo did take that that famous mark um, I was very lucky just to slide through the uh, the, the whole pack to be honest I, if I had have actually or bobbled it the Probably, probably the ball would have been pushed into the um, corridor area, I suppose. But in saying that, even just getting my hands on it didn't allow a CB or a. Uh, there were a couple of. I think Judd was behind the pack as well. Like if I hadn't have sort of got there, they they may have got it anyway. And but even if I had spoiled it, I probably would have knocked it into the corridor. So um, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I I'm fortunate enough I've probably made the right decision. Oh, I think you probably have. And do, th- <laughs> do you think it was a free kick against? Jeez, it would have been game to actually pick one out of there. Talking to Tig, he actually ripped. Um, so back in the day, they didn't get new jerseys uh, printed, and it'd be just like an iron-on patch. He was playing on Sampy and that, and he actually ripped the iron-on badge on off Sampy's jumper. So he had a fair, uh, fair old hold on it. But um, you probably could have picked a few out of it anyway. So it just probably adds to the discussion and the critique. The, uh, the certain moment. It was the last roll of the dice. So once he marked that, it was like that. He just saved that game. He's uh, put it away. Look, I didn't hear the final siren go. Um, and I think a lot of people didn't. But Ty Keneally, uh, my old Irish mate, jumped on the back. And, you know, it wasn't until then that we actually could realise that the, uh, the siren had gone because we couldn't even hear it. It was that loud. You know, when you reflect on your on your career and just the feedback you get from people, it's like I only ever played one game and uh, I was fortunate enough to take a lucky mark in that one game. But, look, there's a lot of players that have played our great game and, you know, to be sort of remembered for one of those um, one of those moments is probably not a bad thing. How many times do you reckon you've seen the mark replayed? Ooh, good question. Oh, God, I'd have to crunch, crunch the numbers. I don't know. <laughs> a thousand? Is it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. An incredible, incredible moment that will stand the test of time. That you didn't see. That I didn't see, you know. People sometimes think coaches have far more impact than they do. And I'm more talking in games, you know, like 
it was almost like the ultimate compliment of the coach handing over to the players, saying, well, I'm not even going to watch because there's absolutely nothing I can do in this period of time. I understand and I, I just hope it works out. And then when I think Peter Janis yelled out, Leo's marked it and then someone else, we couldn't even hear the siren. And then someone else said, oh, the siren's gone because we saw Ty jumping on Leo's back. But I think that's the ultimate compliment to the players. It's This is about you. This is no longer about the coach's box. Will you, do you believe in you know each other? Do you believe in what we've done? And then for Leo to take that mark really epitomised him as a player, to be honest. You know. So where were you looking if you weren't looking at well, I looked the down the other end of the ground because I knew, I'm like, oh, are we going to win or are we not going to win? Well, it's, it, there's nothing I can do at the moment sort of thing. And it was sort of when Coxie marked it because I was a little bit dirty that he'd marked it. I'm like, ah, oh, And I knew he's going to kick it to the hot spot and I knew there was, you know, it's like, Okay, well, what's going to happen? So I was pretty happy when, yeah, I think Jonah or someone yelled out, Leo's marked it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, obviously there's no pre-planning or anything like that. It just came out of my mouth. So the two things I think about it, yes, it was really simple. And I think that's probably great because I wasn't just, you know, spewing words out everywhere and destroying the moment. And the second thing was that at least I... I managed to do the moment justice and as a commentator that's all you're trying to do so I didn't spoil the moment and that was you know the most important thing I think that it was um it was there it was simple and uh you know the the pictures told the story it probably adds to the uh, it's like the Jezelenko go you beauty uh, moment in commentary it, pro- it just adds to it as well it probably it was only a couple of years ago that I actually first uh, met Quarters and certainly congratulated him on his call and uh, he was vice versa so it was some of his best work, and and added added to the um, the enormity of the uh, of the situation, and will probably go down as one of the best calls ever. Uh, the, and the photo is incredible. There's probably about two or three free kicks given away in that contest. But what a what a, that just summed up the way the two teams played. I think that photo where there was just no holds barred and bodies flying everywhere. I, I saw a photo once. I think it was taken by a photographer from the Age. Uh, and there's Mark Seedy right behind Leo Barry with his hands beautifully outstretched, just ready to grab that Sharon. Now, if Leo had missed that, or he must slightly misjudged it, Seedy would have taken that, Mark, and he would have had a shot for goal after the final siren to win a grand final. That's never happened before. So we could have been talking about a very different channel of history here if that hadn't happened. Of course, that's that's all hypothetical, but... And what would your line have been if CB had marked it? Oh, <laughs> Mark CB, you star. It's funny when we talk about the greatest marks of all time. How do you judge that? You know, it's really difficult because there's a pure athleticism of Sean Smith in the goal square and Brett Allison over Silvani and Walker's mark. That's just pure athleticism and talent. When you look at Jezelinko's mark, when you look at Leo Barry's mark in particular, it's so many more traits without being disrespectful to those other guys. You're adding in this incredible self-belief, this incredible courage to, to do it. So you're adding in elements that, you know, none of these other guys have really thought of going for the mark. And as I said, you know, anyone that's won mark of the year or mark of the week, yeah, in a normal home and away season, there's never thinking about the courage to, to mark that ball or, you know, the self-awareness to not spoil it or whatever. It just adds another layer, really, of complexity when you're looking at that mark and those marks. And, and, and if it's not the best mark of all time, it's got to be top three. You know, it has to be for those reasons.
he had no right to be the player that he was at 184 centimetres and 85 kilo full back. He's just an incredible yeah, performance, playing on guys that were 195 to 200 centimetres and 105 kilos. What he did in his career was, in, in my view, was unprecedented and st- and still is because he, he had no right to, to do what he did and he, he just did it because of his competitiveness and his athleticism and his understanding of what he was his strengths and weaknesses were. You know, just that incredible mark that is etched in everyone's memory and and, and that he repeats every single time we have a beer. Um, <laughs> oh, no, you might ask him, it's his shout to go and grab a beer and he'll come back with two beers, but he'll float past like he's marked the ball with his beers. <laughs> he, he's a bloody ripper. Leo and I got to Sydney at the same same year in, in 95, and he's obviously one of my great mates and um, just a ripping, humble, really genuine guy. Played so much bigger and, and, and taller than what he is. And played on some monsters as a as a defender, and you know he he was a forward before that, and, but he just had an incredible work ethic and and a, and a real want to to succeed, and that rubbed off on everyone else. I suppose it comes back to our earlier point around just playing your positions, and and look, you know, I I had um, I had a bit of a bad arthritic knee, and you know um, they were the Swans were really really good at looking after me, like you know I. The last seven pre-seasons, I didn't run before Christmas because they're just trying trying to give me more longevity. So with that, my fitness wasn't great. So probably playing full back probably extended my career a little bit as long as I kept my speed. I'll just so wrapped that you know when he took that mark that that siren went and I think Canelli jumped on his back and then the pylon began and then we all broke down crying. Just the the feeling of relief, I guess, and exhaustion and just the excitement. And I was with Goodsy. I just grabbed him and we fell to the ground. And, and then all you want to do is just get around the people that you sort of sacrificed so much with. The siren goes and it was like, stuff the next process, <laughs> the next move. It was Rhino Keith and Barry Hall. We were the closest to each other, and and then the pylon happened, obviously. And I've got to thank Choco Williams, and I love Choco, but I've got to thank him for the year before because I felt when he grabbed his tie and he wrapped it around his neck and he made the, the comment on the sponsor, and it was interesting watching that. And I was, I just remember thinking, Gee, I hope he's enjoyed it. You know, I'm sure he did, but I, but I think for me that was a really telling moment. Clearly, I had no idea what's going to happen twelve months later, but I remember going into the game thinking. Yeah, if we do win, you know, I want to be fully present. I want to fully enjoy this with my coaches, with my family, with my team, the team, the staff. And I, and I think that was pretty pivotal, having a understanding of what I wanted to do. Also, you know, being a, meditating for so many years, just that ability to be really present in the moment. And we talk about presence a lot. And I don't think many people know what it is. So the ability to to sort of, you know, all the distractions and emotions and just to think clearly. So I'd had an opportunity to think through it the night before and that really was important. So we, yeah, in my own mind, I'd already had a plan as to how it would play out. So that was great because, yeah, we didn't have the luxury of some of the some of the coaches do when they're 30 points up, <laughs> you know, halfway through the last quarter or you don't have any luxury in that, you know, bang, the siren's gone and you've won. It just hits you like a ton of bricks. So... I think that was important. 
um, spending time with the coaches in the box and thanking them. It, it sounds silly, but I'm glad we won it pre renovation of mm-hmm. the ground because we actually had the opportunity to walk through the crowd, you know, and to walk through the crowd and to see the, the Swans fans' faces, which you don't get that opportunity to do that now. Um, was it was amazing to get on the field to see, yeah, you know, all the people that put so much money and time and effort and current and former that were on the ground players as well. Dennis Carroll, Barry Round, to, to have Paul Kelly hand you the cup, um, see family, all that sort of stuff. So I'm really pleased that you know I was able to think through the process clearly, and still to this day I can remember so many moments from from the day, you know, afterwards, apart from the mark. Obviously, the connection to the Bloods, but you know Bobby Skilton and Peter Bedford and all the backers who have been through the club through the '80s and '90s, all out in the ground and just enjoying it and being part of it. First premiership in seventy odd years, and for our our members and our and our fans, when you think back on the Swans' history, I think we're five premierships now in hundred and forty odd years or whatever. I mean, it's something ridiculous like that, and it's just. There's been no success. We've had individual success, but no team success. So to have that one, that was just unbelievable. My thoughts were with the players that I played with, the Paul Kellys, the Mark Bays, even Ruthie to that point, um, Derek Kiggetts, Tony Lockett's, who, who who hadn't won a premiership. And they were unbelievable, incredible players. Um, and it was just amazing to be able to mm. tick that off for them as well. They'd love to have played, obviously, but not to be. And... When I bump into past players, even before my era, the guys who made the move from from South Melbourne to Sydney, they are so proud of what their, their team has accomplished and what their team stands for. I can remember going up there and I thought just before I got up there, I was going to grab the microphone. And it was sort of partly to acknowledge what we'd done and who we were, but also to acknowledge the people out there, that connection that we have that South Melbourne, Sydney Swans um, and, our, and our history. So I got my medal and then grabbed the microphone and grabbed my jumper where, you know, the scruff of my jumper and said, this is for the Bloods. And um, yeah, I just wanted to, <laughs> to, to yell it to the world, I guess. Especially people in their family, like they're like, oh, I'm a third generation blood supporter. And, you know, I, I lived on this street in South Melbourne and you know he's my grandfather when he saw that and so yeah it's pretty special and it just makes you realize that um this uh, how important the game is and um yeah the game is much bigger than yourself when you sort of start to sort of get a sense of that and here it is where that comes from it's funny i you sort of rehearse your because you want to be humble regardless of whether you win or lose. So you sort of think through it, to be honest, the night before. What am I going to say in the press conference if we lose? What am I going to say if the win? But I never, ever rehearsed here it is. But I remember the banner sort of came up and it was, you know, two cities, one town, one team or whatever it was at the time. And so it sort of struck me that, and when I was on the field, you know, everyone from Bobby Skilton, who was pure, you know, really South Melbourne, to Roundy and, and and Dennis, who were in that phase of relocating, to Paul Kelly, that was very much Sydney. And as I walked on the ground, I sort of thought, this really is the culmination of what happened in 1981, I think it was, and almost like the mending of the wounds and, and bringing everyone together. And, and really the here it is sort of came from that moment of everyone, you know, has followed the Sydney Swans, South, South Melbourne or whichever way it was, you know, here it is. Because I just felt when I got up on stage, every premiership is, is great. But it was pretty defining what had happened, the history of that footy club. 
and what's your emotion there and then once the siren goes and you've had to go through all of that and fall and just short? It was a mixed emotion. One, I was super proud of the players because, you know, the previous three years we'd finished eighth and got bowled out in the first final. So the way they'd gone about it and played through that final series was just remarkable. Disappointed, but it, there was no feeling of um, anyone had let anyone down. I think the feeling was, boys, we gave it our best crack. Couldn't have asked any more from you. And it's disappointing we haven't got there, but probably pride would have been the biggest feeling. I remember the night before he ran a session where we had to sort of pick a player in the, in the team and say something around what you liked about them, which was <laughs> pretty... Any time you're sort of talking about your feelings, the, the current day players are a bit more in tune with all that stuff. But, uh, I mean, even back then, that was something we were all pretty uncomfortable with doing. And I remember Cuz got up and said something to Michael Gardner, who was playing with a broken foot on the day. The night before, he said something like, oh... You know, we're great mates, yada, yada, and, and you always stand up in big games, and that, that's what I respect about you. And I just remember sitting in the room post that grand final, and, you know, Gardy didn't have a great game, as, as not many people do with broken feet. And he, he just brought up our cousins, put the mock on him the night before with that silly speech, and, uh, oh, that made me laugh. So there, there were some funny moments in the, in the sadness from, uh, from a grand final loss. You had nearly 30 disposals and, of course, won the Norm Smith medal yet you lost the game. So what were your emotions post the match? No, I was just shattered on the day and, and didn't receive any joy from getting the Norm Smith medal. The, the one thing winning that medal or, or even just playing well on the day escapes you of is that, that sense of shame or embarrassment that you can attach to as a player when you, you don't perform on a, a big stage in a really important match. So. I guess a part of me was grateful that I didn't have to deal with that feeling of embarrassment or shame over the summer, but certainly the feeling of, of disappointment and, and sadness at you know, a, a potential dream achieved that was, was lost, um, yeah, was, was every bit as prevalent in me as it was in, in everyone else in that team. Yeah, it's just devastation. All the work that you put in and to fall so short, you never know what's going to happen as well the year after. You know, I think that's probably one thing at the time is the reflection is, have you missed your opportunity? Yeah, everyone played their role on that day. And that, that was the only way we're going to win, by everyone playing their role and no real, you know, standout stars, you know, and yeah. Juddy won the Norm Smith. That was in the era where you had to vote before the... Like it was 10 minutes before the end of the game. And I'm sure in hindsight it would have gone to one of the Swans players, as it should. And I always say, you know, it should always go to the winning team unless Gary Ablett Senior kicks, what did he kick? Nine. Nine. It's pretty hard to top that in the grand final on nine goals. So it should always go to the winning team. But it would have been hard to pick. Well, Quarters was one who was giving the votes yeah. and... He had Patrick Keane behind him while he was, nah, it was calling ridiculous. Leo Barry yeah. star. Yeah, ridiculous. You know, to, to have such a prestigious war, award you know, voted in, I think it's changed since. I think it has, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is the right thing to do. But my point more around, it would have been hard to pick a Swans player. You would have been able to pick one, and, and they should have. But by the very nature of the way we played, it's always hard to pick the best Swans player you know, when we were winning because we, were such, we played as a team. After the game, I have vivid memories. My youngest brother was seven or eight at the time and he had run away from mum and dad and come down to the fence and jumped on the ground with me and did the victory lap after the game in 05. Yep. So young Merrick was, you know, run away from mum and dad. He ended up in the down in the um, change rooms 
with just the players after the game having a, oh, I'm not going to say he had a crownie, but we all had a crownie. <laughs> Um, yeah, but just memories about, you know, sharing that with family and then obviously, you know, being able to, you know, share that with your teammates. That we, were, we were great mates. We had, a, we had a really tight-knit team. Did you go back out onto the ground? Or? Yeah, the couple of things that really stood out for me, you know, one was how did people get the passes to get in the rooms? <laughs> I, I always sort of thought, because there were so many people in the rooms after the game, I was sort of blown away. Um, seeing the family was you know, amazing. Um, you know, brothers, sisters, my, my dad, you know, getting a, I remember the photo with them. Then there was a moment, we, I'd spoken to the players and I just sat down and it was more just, that was actually captured on photo, which I didn't realise that was going to happen at the time. Not that it was a problem or not, but I was in the rooms by myself in the coaches' rooms, just to almost like a sense of, yeah, amazing relief and achievement, but just exhaustion, I guess, because it's a long year and, yeah, it's very difficult to do. And then Andrew Island had this idea about going out in the ground after the game. I think the Brisbane Lions must have done it. And he said, look, what do you think about that? I said, oh, this is amazing. So that was really special just to get the players and coaches and the, some of the lighting was still on and the, the photos from that were amazing. Yeah, so they're probably the main things at the ground. Speaking of the ground, then when you look at what you achieved at the ground, how do you see the MCG? I'm really, really fortunate to travel and... And being some of the world's best sporting venues and coming back to MCG, it really has a mystique. So whether you're a player or a coach or even a fan, it, it's an incredible venue. So having, you know, achieved so much personally and being, you know, in the different positions of player, coach and fan, you know, you have a unique perspective, obviously. But I just think it's incredible ground regardless, you know, because you, you're fortunate where it is to walk, you know, whether it's by train, walk, drive, um, stay at a hotel across the road, get a tram through the city, you know, this wide open parkland. But it but truly is a magical place. Like even when there's no one there, I remember giving the players a speech um, at Melbourne, you know, and I said, look, can we go on the ground? And Josh Marnie said, yeah, yeah. And I, and I sort of went through my journey at the MCG and how important it was to me this is ground and how lucky they were to play. It is an, it's a magical place. Um, there's, there's no question about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm f- forever grateful, you know, to be part of, you know, minor part of the history of the MCG. But it does, it does carry, you know, huge weight in this state and, and, and in, in Australia, and so it should. Premiership winning coach Paul Ruse rounding out our look back on Sydney's thrilling 2005 AFL Grand Final victory. A big thank you to Ruse, Brett Kirk, Mickey O'Loughlin, of course, Leo Barry, what a star. John Warsfold, Chris Judd, Dean Cox and Stephen Quartermain. Thanks too to the AFL for the use of the Channel 10 audio from the day. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google and Spotify podcasts and leave us a review or join the conversation on Twitter at MCC underscore members. Don't forget to join us for part two of our special on this incredible rivalry between the Swans and the Eagles when we turn our attention to 2006. In the meantime, enjoy the footy and hopefully we'll see you soon at the G.